Mel Fanboy, episode 54. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 54th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, it's been uh, it's been another very interesting week here at RevengeOfTheFans.com, and you know I'm noticing more and more that it's just it, it's it's becoming really tough to be a film fan these days and to be a superhero fan these days and in general a fan of genre filmmaking and all this sort of stuff because there's just so much information out there and it's hard to decipher what is you know what is a uh, editorial what is news what is fact what is opinion what is important what is news what counts as news because if you think about it in recent years uh, across the board Everything has become some sort of a news story. Now we talk about, you know, the the running time for a movie. Now we talk about the marketing campaign for a movie. Did they start too late? Did they start too soon? What did we think of the tone of the marketing? What do we think the demographic that they're going for? You know, now we analyze the additional photography and the reshoots and you know, everyone thinks they're an expert and every single bit of minutiae gets chewed up and spit out and everyone thinks they're an expert on a topic now. And meanwhile, do we really know anything more? And aside from that, do we really want to know all this stuff? Is half the stuff that we agonize over even really important? You know, I kind of want us all to take a step back for a second. When When you realize that you're arguing with fellow fans and you're on Twitter bickering about things like running times and the theatrical cut versus the extended cuts and uh, the, the color grading done on the film and, and so on and so forth. Like, are you really participating in this in the way that you were meant to? Aren't you just someone who's here to observe and be entertained and go to the theater and buy your popcorn and your soda and get together with your friends and go check out something and then discuss it on your own afterward how you felt about it you know aren't you kind of heading off into the weeds if you're really focusing on yeah i wonder how this movie is testing and how does this movie's testing compare to its predecessors testing like who really gives a fuck at the end of the day and should we give a fuck and really you know What's happened is the same thing that happened with quote-unquote real news has now extended itself over into film discussions, into film news. Because if you think about it, when news itself went into the 24-7 news cycle, suddenly everything had to become a story because they had to fill airtime. You know, as soon as CNN became 24-7 and Fox News became 24-7 and MSNBC and all this sort of stuff, suddenly the very definition of news changed. You know, when I was growing up, news was just, you know, there was like the, uh, I think like the six o'clock news hour, and then you'd watch again at 10 or 11 for the full hour long thing. And that's it. You know, at six or seven, you got like a half hour news update. And then right before bed, there was the hour. And that was kind of all the news you dealt with. And then somewhere along the way, the, you know, the 24-7 news conglomerates got together. And now suddenly 
everything's a story, everything's a headline. It's become more about entertaining you and feeding your own ideology and keeping you complacent in front of that television rather than just giving you the facts that you need to go on with your day. What's going on in the world? What's happening in my neighborhood? What's the weather going to be tomorrow? Okay, great. And that sort of happens now with the geek world, with the film Twitter, with the film websites. Everyone needs headlines. Everyone needs fresh content. Everyone's fighting for your eyeballs and your clicks. And you end up with headlines about things that don't really fucking matter. Um, and that's why, like, you know, I, I took to heart earlier this week, I had a, I had a reader reach out to me via Twitter because, uh, you know, he was a little distressed by the fact that we were covering Deadpool with such an analytical eye in terms of, you know, the, the latest Hollywood Reporter uh, article about how the test screenings are going and all this sort of stuff. And while there, you know, I had a very specific reason for wanting to cover that stuff because, you know, a couple of weeks ago there was that big brouhaha about the test screenings and about reshoots and all this sort of stuff. You know, I kind of wanted to just cover this just to kind of put a button on all that, just to kind of, you know, let's bookend this whole Deadpool 2 story with how it seems to be doing now, where, okay, apparently there was some concern from the test screenings, the, you know, from the, from the first round of screenings, and now it looks like things are you know, on proper footing. So that's why I kind of wanted to just cover that. By the way, I have a little bochinche on the Deadpool stuff that we'll get, we'll, we'll get to later. But specifically, you know, I think the reader had a very good point. And I, I, when it comes to Deadpool, I can honestly state that the next thing you'll hear about it is probably the review when the movie comes out. Because I don't want to analyze these things to death. I don't want to pull the fun and the magic out of all this sort of stuff. And mind you... You know, I know this may sound like a, a, a touch hypocritical coming from me because, you know, I am the one who last year broke the story about the Justice League reshoots. And, you know, and I the year before that, I also wrote the scoop about Rogue One's reshoots and what happened there with Gareth Edwards. So technically, I've done my part in contributing to the fact that all these different phases of production get hyper-analyzed and scrutinized, and they take on a life of their own. So, you know, listen, I, I own that. I know that I've probably contributed to some of that noise. But, you know, you got to understand, and I, and I clarified this after I wrote the Justice League scoop. You know, I clarified that that was not a scoop to, to make you concerned. If you actually go back and read the way I handled that story, it was not like doom and gloom and, oh, everything's fucked and Justice League is going in the shitter. I actually handled it like, listen, reshoots happen all the time. These are just bigger than usual. You know, they're, they're kind of like remaking the movie. So for those of you out there who are interested in knowing how the bagels are made, for, you know, longtime listeners should remember that phrasing because I used to use it a lot last year around this time. But, you know, th th that scoop, that story was really just for hardcore cinephiles who are fascinated by the filmmaking process. So when I shared that, it was just so you can know, like, hey, guys, here's this big movie coming out, and there's all this crazy work happening to it, and this is, like, not the norm, so let's see how it plays out. You know, that was really my sole intention. And then, of course, other sites run it, and suddenly it's doom and gloom, and everything's a disaster, and everything gets exaggerated, and everything transforms magically into some type of clickbait nonsense. And I even see it happening now, by the way. 
you know, I started hearing yesterday about, oh, there's some negative buzz around Aquaman and people are telling me about that. And then I looked it up. You know, I looked it up. Apparently it comes from Mr. Mark Hughes, the very respected writer for uh, Forbes and who also I think has a podcast called Superhero News. I think that's what it's called. Um, he made a comment and I, I watched it. I saw the full response of what he said and it dumbfounds me that this has become now like a, a, a plot line on Twitter and on Reddit and I see websites running these huge like, you know, doom ridden uh, headlines about what he said. All Mark Hughes said was that he's heard some negative things from, from test screenings. He also knows that people have heard positive things. And he wrapped the whole thing up by saying, but I'm not worried because I know that James Wan is a great director and blah, 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 and Jason Momoa is a very inspired casting for Arthur Curry. So I'm not worried. So let's recap. Mark Hughes says that you know, he, he's heard positive and negative things. And he knows people have heard positive things. He's personally heard some negative, but he's not worried. And somehow that very diplomatic, very even-keeled statement by Mr. Hughes has become this thing of like, oh, have you heard that Aquaman's in trouble? Oh, no. And it's like, are you people fucking kidding me right now? Like, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to try and tear things down? I mean, let's get a grip here. And I know that websites, really they want your clicks. And technically, I run a website, so maybe I should be more shrewd about this stuff. And I should be fighting for your clicks, too. Maybe it's why Revenge of the Fans has made like 25 bucks in the two months it's been open. But you know what? I don't care. I don't want to do that to you. But just to like put into perspective, okay, how, how meaningless all this test screening nonsense is. You know, last year I wrote, I covered a story for the Splash Report when I was freelancing for Kelvin over there. Uh, you know, we had gotten information about the Blade Runner 2049 test screening. And I wrote the story and then we had to subsequently take it down because Warner Brothers flipped out because, you know, someone broke their non-disclosure agreement and those test screening things are supposed to be highly, highly confidential. Um, so we had to take it down. But either way, what I'm getting at is the test screenings for Blade Runner 2049, which very similar to Aquaman, by the way, um, you know, where the movie was coming at the end of the year. And this was like the earliest round of test screenings, very far away from the film's release. So last year around this time, Blade Runner had its test screenings. And they were pretty negative. The, 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 apparently the results were that it was too long, it was kind of boring and aimless, and people didn't end up liking it. Now, mind you, I shouldn't be comparing, uh, you know, I don't know, it might be a bad comparison to bring up Blade, Blade Runner 2049 right now, because that movie did ultimately sort of bomb at the box office, and I, I have much higher hopes for Aquaman. But the point is this, the early test screenings were, were negative, but it was done so far in advance that the studio and director Denis Villeneuve and the editors were able to take that input in and make adjustments accordingly. And if you ask me, the theatrical cut of Blade Runner 2049 was magnificent. You know, never mind the fact that it, you know, it didn't get seen at theaters, neither did the original Blade Runner. So, you know, it, it failed at the box office, but for me, that movie 
in many ways, is better than the first. I actually personally enjoyed Blade Runner 2049 way more than the original Blade Runner. Maybe that's, you know, blasphemy for me to say. But the point is, test screenings don't mean that much. Test screenings are just a whole, it's just part of the process where a studio wants to put this thing in front of a group of strangers and see what is their initial response. Is there anything, are there any recurring things that we're hearing from this overall group of people that we should try to incorporate into the final cut? What test screenings are not about are going to like one specific person in each row and saying, well, what did you think? And what did you think? And what did you think? Because if you do it that way, you're just going to get all kinds of opinions. Because remember, movies are pieces of art and everyone takes in art differently. So you can't just go to isolated people. And that's what seems to be happening here, where people from test screenings are passing along their own specific takes on the films to somebody on Reddit or Twitter, and then that's becoming a headline. But remember what they say about opinions. They're like assholes. Everyone's got one, and most of them, all of them really, stink. So this whole test screening nonsense is getting blown way out of proportion, and that, that is not the purpose and it, it is a betrayal of the filmmaking process. It is, the, it is a betrayal of what test screenings even are for people to be running negative headlines and creating doom and gloom because of something happening in a test screening. So from now on, as the editor-in-chief of revengeofthefans.com, I'm going to tell you right here, right now, I will not be running any more stories about test screenings because it's just ludicrous to do. And I, I don't, it, it's like I said, it's a, it's a betrayal of the process. And especially since even if, if I report it in an even-keeled way, someone else will take it, focus on the negative, and they will steal your attention away, they'll get your clicks, and they'll go running to the bank with it. And I'm not about that life. And if I'm Mark Hughes right now, I'm furious at the fact that people took a very even-keeled quote that he made on his podcast about Aquaman, and they're turning it into clickbait garbage. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, I don't want Revenge of the Fans to be about that life. You know, and and I know that like the name sounds sort of hostile. It sounds sort of aggressive. Revenge of the fans, but that's the thing. Like for me, the site is not about vengeance, and it's not necessarily about like, especially not amongst fans. You know, I don't want us railing against each other. I want us united, discussing the things we love passionately, even if we disagree, having passionate, respectful debates about the things that we love. For me, that's what Revenge of the Fans is about. And if we are going to fight, I want to channel it into us versus them, with the us being all of us, fandom, no matter how we feel, all of us, and the them being the people calling the shots on the properties we, the properties we love. You know, those big multinational corporations that hold our beloved characters in the palms of their hands. Those are the people who deserve our vengeance. And those are the people I want to amplify your voices for, to make them hear what we think of what they're doing. You know, so I just, I, I don't want Revenge of the Fans to be a place for hostility and anger, despite the fact that it has revenge in the title. You know, I just, I don't want this to be about aggression. And 
That's why, you know, I'm going to make a concerted effort to avoid negative rumor mongering, to, to try to, you know, tear movies down. I don't want to do that. Um, cause I just, that at the end of the day, these are, this is all entertainment. This is supposed to be, you know, especially when it comes to movies, this is about a bunch of people got together, they collaborated and made a, a piece of art. And now you're going to go to the theater for two hours, check it out, decide whether you like it or like it, and then move on. And I'm like, yeah, of course, a lot of us are going to continue to talk about the movie on Twitter. And, you know, that, listen, Obviously, the hardcore of us will will keep the discussion going, but I I don't want us to start. I don't know how do I put this, and I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cut here. I want to figure this out while as you listen, how I, I can put this clearly and concisely. I don't want us hyper analyzing and ripping to shreds every single phase of a film's production because you're not an expert. And I'm not an expert. We're all just fans. And we're, we're just here to enjoy it, take a pass, give it a thumbs up, and move on to the next thing. That is it. Um, but okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on a little now to uh, just a, a, a brief WonderCon update. Because, you know, the, that show kicks off today. And tomorrow, you know, there's hopefully still something that I reported uh, going to happen. But, you know, right now, you know, earlier in the week, uh, there was an update to the WonderCon schedule that basically called uh, the Warner Brothers panel strictly for Ready Player One. That, you know, they, they basically put to bed any idea that there would be any DC goodness at WonderCon. And, you know, it's a lot of people came to me because I reported that Aquaman is supposed to be unveiled uh, at WonderCon. So now, you know, there, there are some eyeballs on me. There's eyeballs on that report. As I mentioned on the Revenge of the Fans, no, on the Revengers podcast earlier this year, uh, year, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's been a couple of cooped up snow days in here. So I'm a little stir crazy and my mind is all over the place. But as I said on the Revengers podcast, you know, as recently as this past Monday afternoon, I was still being assured by someone in Warner Brothers, uh, you know, I guess I shouldn't specify too much which office they work for because, uh, you know what, they're, they're, they're kind of stressed over there right now. And I'll get to that in a second. But as recently as Monday afternoon, there was, uh, you know, they were fully planning on unveiling the Aquaman trailer this Saturday with possibly some special guests coming to uh, unveil it. And what, I, what I've done in the week since is, you know, I've reached out just to see, like, have things changed? Why did they change? What's going on? And the only responses I got back is basically a bunch of very cautious, sort of looking over their shoulder, conservative responses, where basically, you know, all the, my insider just said, you know, I can't say anything with regard to whether or not things have changed. And, you know, they've intimated to me, and as I've brought up before in previous reports, that right now leaks are a big problem. And I'm kind of reading, you know, the tea leaves here. I wonder if if uh, all the reports that have come out about the Aquaman trailer are why they're pumping the brakes on it now. You know, I, I hate to put it this way, because it would actually mean I, I fucked up and I don't like admitting when I make mistakes. 
But it looks like, you know, if they were planning to do it as a big surprise and as a big secret, and I opened my big damn mouth and told the world now that James Wan and Jason Momoa are going to fly to WonderCon to unveil the trailer, you know, now the surprise is gone. And now, you know, I, you know, I reported it and it got picked up by pretty much every major geek site. And now it's like, I ruined the surprise. And now I feel awful about that. So, you know, I, I just, I get the sense that leaks are a problem. They might be upset about the fact that the story got out and now the entire rug has been pulled out from under that surprise. Um, but again, they're not saying that it's not going to happen. You know, my insider was very sort of deliberate in just being vague. They wouldn't say yes or no. They just said, I can't say anything. And then I, I threw in a little joke like, come on, let me help me break the internet. And they wrote back saying, I can't break my job. And I'm like, okay, okay, say no more. Say no more. Listen, the last thing I ever want is to put someone's job in jeopardy just to try to bring you guys some cool news. So that's why I can't press it much further. We're going to have to wait and see how this plays out tomorrow. Hopefully, over the weekend, they drop that Aquaman trailer and we have some exciting stuff to discuss next week. Um, but for now, you know, we're, we're just, we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, and by the way, just a little DC bochinche before I, before I change gears here. Uh, for those of you who are into Batman Hush... Uh, I think you have a lot to be excited about right now. Um, yeah, I don't often talk about the animated stuff, uh, the animated movies and the cartoons, because I don't really tend to watch them, so I kind of have a blind spot for that. But for those of you who love DC Entertainment's animated efforts, uh, I'm told that even though you know there were some teases back in 2016, it looks like Batman Hush is proceeding and is now like in some stage of active production. So just kind of, I wanted to just share that little bit of gossip with you. I'm not going to make a story about it because again, I'm not sure how big a deal that is. But for those of you out there who love the Batman Hush books, which I did, um, the animated movie is proceeding. So we're going to have a Hush movie to enjoy uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but all right, so now we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to talk about a little, a little Marvel goodness now, change gears just a tad. Um, yeah, I, I want to circle back to the Deadpool situation. I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I had a little bochincha there. Um, and again, this is not a negative story. It's not a positive story. It's just a story. Uh, apparently, the reshoots for the film are a little more extensive than the production wants you to know about. Uh, you know, apparently... Despite the fact that the, 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 the official word coming out of Fox and that's been recited through The Hollywood Reporter and elsewhere is that they only had like one week of scheduled additional photography at the end of uh, February. Apparently, they are currently filming in Vancouver until the 29th of this month. So what is that? That's like another six days. So apparently, they have done some extra shooting. Uh, again, there's no reason to think that it's good, bad, or ugly, but, uh, you know, I just think it's interesting just to kind of put a, you know, one little extra exclamation point on this ongoing Deadpool story. Uh, it, you know, they are working on something. Uh, I don't know if, you know, again, I don't want to speculate as to why 
I do find it notable that it's March and the movie comes out in May and they're still doing work on it. But, you know, I enjoyed the, the second trailer. The test screenings are apparently going well. I don't think we have anything to worry about. But for those of you who are intrigued by the filmmaking process, yes, indeed, Deadpool 2 is having some additional photography uh, in Vancouver up until the 29th of this month. So that's interesting. Take that for what you will. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I've had a couple of snow days here in New York. There was a big blizzard a couple days ago and they closed schools and me and my wife and my kids have been home and also one of my wife's best friends is staying over too. His name's David and we, when everyone's cooped up in the house, we tend to watch a lot of TV and all that sort of stuff. And spontaneously, I kind of began my own MCU rewatch. I'm not going to do all 18 movies, mind you, but I, I I coincidentally ended up watching, you know, chapters one and two. I watched Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk in these last two days. And mind you, I don't really rewatch movies. So in the case of Iron Man, I haven't seen that movie since the first time I saw it. Since opening night in May of 2008, I have not sat down and watched Iron Man from start to finish. So this was the first time in nearly 10 years. Um, and, you know, and I'm glad I did. You know, it's I, the movie is a lot bolder than uh, I even remember. You know, John Favreau's visual stylings and uh, the sort of hard-hitting nature of it. You know, it actually felt a little grown up, a little mature. You know, it kind of, it started the whole thing off with a little more edge than I think the MCU has been known for. It's funny, so it seems like the MCU started with, with some edge and some bite. Then it kind of lulled into like Disney World sort of safe-ish corporate stuff for a while. And now they're coming back into being a little more artistic and edgy and interesting again. So, you know, it's all peaks and valleys, right? But, you know, I uh, I still enjoyed it. Uh, I, I, I took away even more from it this time, uh, watching it with 10 years of added experience under my belt and watching what Robert Downey Jr. did with that character and some of the interesting building blocks that they established for him and his arc. Uh, it's going to be very powerful to see him in uh, Infinity War and, and see how his arc finalizes, if you know what I mean. Um, and then you know, with Incredible Hulk, you know, I watched it last night with just my kids, you know, my wife and her friend and David, they went to go see Sean Paul. They love reggae. They went to go check out Sean Paul in, uh, in Brooklyn. And I stayed here and I watched The Incredible Hulk with my six-year-old daughter and my three-year-old son. And you know what? That movie's still pretty damn awesome. I said it last week and I'll say it again. I enjoyed the fuck out of that movie. Uh, I still cringe at the fact that, you know, he can't get his heart rate up when he has that line, you know, I can't get too excited. I'm like, that's not what Hulk is. Hulk, it's about temper. It's about anger. It's about rage. You know, do not stop Bruce from being able to get some nookie. Here he is with Betty in the hotel room and it's they're good to go. But now because the writers decided his heart rate can't go up, now they got to do that to him. I hate that. But anyway... I just thought it was interesting that I got to watch the first two entries in the MCU these last couple days, especially now as we're as we're leading up towards the uh, the big you know the tenth anniversary climactic showdown of Infinity War uh, at the end of next month. Looking forward to that. So 
Uh, continuing in, in last week's trend, I will now look at Marvel's Phase 2 and just kind of give you my, uh, my, my, my memories, my Marvel memories about seeing all the films in Phase 2 and what I walked away from each with. So first one up was Iron Man in 2013. You know, Iron Man 3, you know, I'm talking about Iron Man 3, I should have said. Iron Man 3, um... You know, I enjoyed it. I, I really did. I, I, I didn't mind the, the big Mandarin twist. I know that was a big polarizing thing. I actually enjoyed it for what it was. Remember, I'm not someone who is like dialed in and, and, and hooked in to the comic book source material. So I don't mind when they mess with sacred cows a little bit. So I know that the Mandarin is, is a huge deal in the, in the Iron Man lore. And I know that a lot of people were upset about that, but I thought it was bold. I thought it was interesting. And I enjoyed what they did with all that, with the whole swerve, with who Ben Kingsley was really playing. Um, and I liked a lot of, you know, the, the Shane Black-isms. You know, Shane Black, who, you know, who wrote and directed this, who also wrote for the Lethal Weapon series in the 80s, you know, and who wrote, you know, the, he did my, my favorite uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with to uh, Tony Stark, <laughs> with Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer before Robert Downey Jr. completed his comeback with Iron Man. Uh, and he also wrote and directed The Nice Guys with Russell Crowe and, and Ryan Gosling, which I thought was pretty damn great. So I thought Iron Man 3 had a lot of that great Shane Black-isms, the great one-liners, the great almost sort of self-parody I love the line with the henchman where he's like, I don't even like these guys. And he runs away because he doesn't want to fight Tony. Like, you know, it, to me, it has that great rebellious, anarchic Shane Black energy coursing through its veins. And I really do enjoy that. Uh, for me, where the movie fell, you know, falls short and, and what continues to be the biggest failing for me is they went way too big with it. They went way too big with the threat against Tony. You know, this was the first movie after the Avengers. So now we've established that we've got Captain America running around. We've got a Hulk running around. We got Black Widow. We have all of S.H.I.E.L.D. working together. You know, there's this huge network of good guys. And they made the Iron Man 3 threat so big that, you know, Air Force One is getting hijacked. The president might die. It's this whole cross-country insane storyline how do you do something that big and not even address for a second that Tony is part of a team of superheroes? You know, to me, the whole thing would have worked much better, would have been much more potent and powerful and well done if it was more of an intimate personal threat. You know, it was Tony versus uh, whatever his name, the, the Guy Ritchie character, you know, one-on-one -on -one dealing with that and the, uh, and the Mandarin hoax guy, that should have all just been like a very localized, intimate, personal threat. It should have been Tony's demons coming back to fight him for the way that he treated the Guy Ritchie character. And it should have been him trying to deal with this man-to-man, one-on-one. As soon as you have an international terrorist figure in Mandarin, before we found out that he's not, as soon as you have someone like that threatening to come and kill and blow up Tony's house, on the news in you know that is conceivably being seen by everyone with a television you know nick fury someone would have called tony up and they're like hey so uh, do you need some backup you know so to me that that was the biggest crime for that movie they made the threat 
way too big, and thus it became wholly unrealistic and illogical that Tony would be dealing with all of this by himself. Um, all they could, all they would have had to have done is have you know pay Sam Jackson thirty bucks to record a conversation with Tony where he calls them, says he calls Tony and says, "Hey, uh, you need any help from Shield?" And Tony says, "No, this is on me. I made this, and I have to deal with it." And then boom, that's it. You know, like something like that, I think would have gone a very long way. But without it, it just felt like didn't we just anyway? I'm not going to beat that dead horse. You get it. Moving on. For the Dark World was the first Thor movie that I actually saw in theaters. As I mentioned last week, I had skipped the first Thor uh, for a multitude of reasons, probably the most of which was that it opened up a week after my daughter Talia was born, and I was not about to go see a movie uh, with my baby at home. You know what I mean? Um, but Thor the Dark World I saw in theaters as one of those little Marvel marathons. I've never really done those. Uh, for any type of movie that had these little marathons that happened, these promotional events. But that day I saw Thor followed by the Avengers and it all led right into the dark world. It was, this was at the AMC Fresh Meadows Theater. I was there with Jeremy Scully and it was cool. You know, we spent like, what, eight hours in the theater that day watching all these movies. Um, but the movie itself was a dud. I mean, let's be honest here. The Dark World was, to me, it was boring. It was monochrome. It was it had a very uncompelling villain. It had very melodramatic acting. To me, there was just nothing to it. Uh, I thought it was a total misfire of a film. I still do. And my biggest thing was, you know, walking out of the theater, I'm like, I wonder if I would have liked it better had I not just watched... The first Thor, which I thought was you know surprisingly better than I expected, followed by the Avengers, which at the time I still had very, very high positive feelings about. So I'm like, maybe if I hadn't just watched those two, this wouldn't have felt like such a turkey. But man, this felt like a turkey. Um, then, oh boy, was Captain America the Winter Soldier. Now that one, that one was amazing for me. Uh, for a multitude of reasons, I'm not going to do an entire review of it, but I just remember it felt vital, it felt important, it felt complex and interesting. It took all the seeds that I loved that were planted in Captain America, the first Avengers, and the first Avenger, and took it to a whole other mature, interesting place. And it had that whole political thriller thing and the espionage, and it had a lot of heartfelt emotional stuff where you see how far Steve Rogers has come and his relationship with Bucky and what it means to him and what that grudge has become and the whole, you know, dissolution of S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA. Like, I thought it was a groundbreaking movie. I thought it, it took, it pivoted the entire MCU in a whole new direction. You know, because you know, Iron Man 3 didn't really do much for the greater landscape. Thor The Dark World did pretty much nothing for the greater landscape. But Winter Soldier changed everything. When you think about what it did to S.H.I.E.L.D. and the whole Hydra bit, it changed. That, that for me, was the real kickoff of Phase 2. Um, and something that just, to me, that, that sticks with me to this day is the danger, the violence, the, the the stakes of the Winter Soldier. Because I remember like when Nick Fury was getting attacked by all those things, when he's driving in the car and they're they're ramming in the car and they're shooting at him. Like for the first time in any of these MCU movies up to that point, I felt worried about the hero. 
I didn't know what was going to happen with Nick Fury. He was bleeding. The, 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 the way the violence was staged and the sound editing and the cinematography, this looked like a thankless, hopeless situation. And you were fearing for Nick Fury's life. And for me, that was the first time I'd felt that. And, that, and you know, we'd already, at this point, we were six years into the MCU. And this was the first time I found myself viscerally there in my seat going, what is about to happen here? This is intense. And then he, he dies. They kill him off. Obviously, it's just a surprise. You know, it's just a swerve and we find out later. But the way that whole thing plays out, was so powerful and so gripping. And I, to this day, I remember like, you know, the Winter Soldier was on TV two weeks ago and I watched Nick Fury's death and I got a lump in my throat. Meanwhile, I know that in an hour, we're going to see him hiding out and he's going to reveal that he faked his death. And I still have this like lump in my throat. My eyes get watery because it doesn't matter that we know that he's alive. You know, Steve doesn't know. Natasha doesn't know. And I'm so invested in these characters that putting myself in their shoes as they watch Nick Fury, the man who orchestrated pulling the Avengers together, is dead. Like, it was powerful stuff. And to me in general, just the Winter Soldier was a complete game changer. And I don't know that there's been a better Marvel film since. Uh, even including Black Panther, which I loved. But to me, Winter Soldier is always just like... That is the best example of what these movies can be, if you ask me. Um, then there was Guardians of the Galaxy, which, you know, I, I've discussed before, but I know I've got some new listeners now. So just to sort of recap, uh, I made the mistake of seeing Guardians of the Galaxy uh, late at night while on vacation in Puerto Rico. Uh, I was staying at my abuelita's house in, uh, in Bayamón. And uh, my wife decided to turn in early and her and the kids stayed there. And I went out to the casino. They have a nice little casino there next to Plaza del Sol. And I played some blackjack and I won a few hundred bucks and I was feeling good. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go see Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to treat myself. And then I fell asleep. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to say that's an indictment of the film. But you know what it is? It, to me, the, the, the film, both both Guardians movies, really, but I guess I'll get to volume two next week. Uh, it just felt sort of toothless. It felt like it got played for laughs. Here's a, here's a cool, you know, setting for where you can kind of have your own space opera where the, the characters are really relatable and interesting and you can be grandiose and theatrical. And a lot of Peter Quill's arc can be very heart-wrenching and heartfelt and thought-provoking as he searches for his father and tries to reconnect with his memories of his mother who gave him that beautiful mixtape. And to me, like, there's all this beautiful emotional undercurrent under Guardians of the Galaxy. And it could have told a very potent, very relatable, very touching story. And to me, ultimately, they just went the bubblegum route. It became all about the jokes and the quips and the dance-off. And to me, like, I think that's one of the main reasons I fell asleep. I just, you know, I remember be loving the first half hour as they were setting the world up. And we start in that tragic scene in the hospital and the whole thing, I remember thinking, like, oh, wow, this feels like Spielberg. This feels like like Amblin Entertainment at its best, where, you know, you're rooting for this child and you want him to find out about, you know, who his father is and, and deal with 
the loss of his mother. And I was like, I was so in. And then you have the space trappings and the ships and the different planets and the alien beings. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be like a new Star Wars. This is unbelievable. But then as the movie went on, it just kind of revealed itself to just be a cute little popcorn movie. And I just, I fell asleep. It just, it, it, did, it didn't grip me. And then even when I saw it again, uh, I don't know, last year on Netflix, when I was trying to get ready to see volume two, I rewatched it. And, you know, I enjoyed it a little more because I didn't see it at 11 o'clock at the end of a long day of vacationing. But uh, it's still, I just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a film that kind of cut itself off by playing, by playing things small, playing things for laughs, instead of really going for the jugular and trying to make you, you know, feel something in your heart and think something with your mind. They just went very lowbrow with it, which then brought us over to Avengers Age of Ultron. Now, I don't know, my, my feelings about that film are kind of complicated. Um, because I actually did, you know, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's a disappointment. But to me, I think it's more so because it kind of had to be. Like, there was nowhere to go but down, if you really think about it. The first Avengers was like a, a landmark fanboy, fangirl, you know, geek event. You know what I mean? It was the culmination of four years of storytelling. It was the first time we'd ever seen something like this accomplished with a huge team-up movie after a bunch of solo films. And it had, you know, th th there was so much about it that had that, like, the first time ever buzz. That, like, there was really, you know, there was no topping that. And Age of Ultron, I'm not, you know, I think wisely, they didn't, they didn't even really try to top it. They just tried to tell, you know, another story. And it wasn't as compelling as the first and age, you know, Ultron himself, I think, ultimately was a was an underwhelming, disappointing Marvel villain, uh, not because of the, you know, his origin or, or what he can do, but because you know they like like they started doing in this middle point of their existence, the MCU started making their villains much more just kind of pointless. You know, they 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 started playing things more for laughs instead of for what they could have been. And Ultron, while in the trailers he seemed like he, he was sort of dangerous and metaphorically and poetically he's like the he's like Tony Stark's child. He's he's everything that that is wrong with Tony Stark put into Android form. And it, you know, it's interesting to have the team have to go up against basically Tony Stark's baby. And that could have been a very compelling, very interesting thing. And instead, they just kind of, he kind of became just kind of like a goofy robot there towards the end. And I just, you know, I wasn't feeling that. And it's funny, when I think about that movie now, you know, what we're like almost four years removed from its arrival. Or is it three years? Hang on, I'm going to verify this while I'm here talking. It was 2015. So we're almost three years removed from its arrival. And when I think about that movie, I don't think about Ultron. I don't think about the big fight in Sokovia. I don't think about the opening sequence where they're battling all those people and wherever the hell that was. I don't think about the the enraged, mind-controlled Hulk situation and the battle in the skyscraper and all that. I think about the two big ensemble scenes and how I could have watched an entire movie with about just those sequences. 
I'm referring to the party at Stark Tower where everyone's there in plain clothes and it's an interesting sort of precursor to how poorly things are going to go. But like that scene stuck with me. And then the scene at the farm, at Hawkeye's farm with his wife and his kids and the way that whole thing planned out, the the 15 full minutes we get to spend in that location. You know, that for me is what that movie is about. That is where we got to learn who these characters are a little more, what makes them tick, what their likes and dislikes are, what their true chemistry is, what they're all about. So for that movie, I love those scenes. And that's why, like, in general, my feelings for Ultron are positive. It only really you know, skews negative when I think about it in terms of comparing it to the first Avengers and when I think about the fact that Ultron himself was ultimately another sort of pointless Marvel villain. But really, those two sequences, the ensemble scenes, make that movie for me. And even little things, you know, in the in that final battle on Sokovia, I love that moment where there's like a car going off a ledge with some civilians in it, and Thor and Captain America, I believe, collaborate on saving them. And to me, you know, that's what these movies are about. It's about the saves. It's about not forgetting the human bystanders. It's not about focusing solely on the cool demigods and how iconic they can look and how cool and nifty their powers are. It's about seeing how they use those powers and how they can save humanity and make the world a better place. And for me, Age of Ultron has those elements in it. There is this altruistic nature to the heroism. There is, you know, the, there's even the whole thing with, with Hawkeye, like basically willing to to sacrifice himself and 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 leave his his wife and kids without a husband and father because he has to save someone in Sokovia, and that's just what a hero does. He puts himself second to try to help whoever needs him right at that moment. You know, and then the crazy thing with the sacrifice of Quicksilver and what an interesting turnaround that was when you consider his relationship with Hawkeye earlier in the movie and what we thought of Quicksilver earlier in the movie. You know, so I actually think Ultron was a pretty strong movie. Uh, so that's why, you know, and I know it's very popular now to just lump it in as a piece of crap, but I think it has some of the best hero moments and moments of self-sacrifice of any of the MCU movies. So, you know, unpopular opinion, but there it is. Um, and then last but not least for Phase 2 was Ant-Man. Uh, there's really not a lot to say about Ant-Man. For me, it's kind of more of the Guardians situation, where it's lightweight, it's a popcorn flick, and unlike with Guardians, where I actually was invested in the world that they were setting up before I realized it was all bubblegum, Ant-Man I don't really give a damn about. You know, I, it's just, you know, it's cool. He's a cute character. He has interesting abilities. I enjoy seeing Michael Douglas in a, in a Marvel movie and, and the uh, sort of added heft of knowing that he was the original Ant-Man and the flashbacks and whatever. Like, yeah, I think that stuff is pretty cool, but in general, I don't really care about the Ant-Man mythology. I don't care about what he's going to, like what he adds to the table I love Paul Rudd, but I don't know that we needed Paul Rudd for this movie. I don't know. I'm just kind of like, when it comes to Ant-Man, it's just a big shrug for me. I saw it in theaters. I can't even tell you who I saw it with 
what theater it was. You know, with most of these movies, I'm able to tell you where and when and, and how I took it in. Ant-Man, I know that I saw it in theaters, but that's all I know about it. That's all I remember. It's not a film I've ever rewatched. It's not a film I plan on ever rewatching. Uh, it was fine, but ultimately, it just didn't really matter. Uh, that's just to me. Remember, this is all just my personal takes. But that sort of wraps up my feelings on Phase 2. Uh, so come back next week when we talk about Phase 3. Um, and before I wrap things up, I wanted to just, you know, kind of touch on the fact, just kind of circling back to DC. You know, it's pretty cool. The first numbers for Justice League are in. And, you know, in terms of the uh, the home sales, you know, the Blu-ray and the DVD, and apparently it's doing pretty well. You know, Variety characterized it, characterized it as it storms to number one. Now, it's kind of annoying. They don't include the actual data, like of how many units were sold and how that compares to previous ones. But it opened in the top spot and it knocked out Thor, Thor Ragnarok. And for those of you who are trying to be optimistic about DC's future, you know, this is nothing but good news. This is great. This means that the film is going to probably turn a profit, so we can no longer call it a bomb or a flop. It'll just continue to be just a film that underperformed and misfired and disappointed. But to me, that's a lot easier to handle than this is a film that fell so far from grace that it actually cost the studio money instead of making it money, you know? So this is good news. Because right now we're at a crucial point where the people at DC Entertainment are trying to pivot and put us into new directions. And I'm loving everything I'm seeing from Shazam. I love the costume. I, I'm enjoying that that Facebook video that Zachary Levy and uh, Asher or whatever his name is put together on, on Facebook the other day. Like, I loved all that stuff. I really think that we're heading down a, a beautiful direction with the DCU. And... You know, I them sort of being able to quote unquote get away with Justice League unscathed, I think is important. Now, I would feel differently if everything was still status quo. You know, if it was still the same people calling the shots and they were still looking to basically undermine all their filmmakers and force them to do certain things and they and and they were trying to really push how interconnected everything was and not let this thing breathe you know if it was really if we were looking at a situation of more of the same then i would want justice league to fail i would want the home sales to be you know zilch nada don't support these people because then I would want them to do like some sort of hard reboot or really, you know, just let, let's end this thing. But the fact that they seem to have learned from previous mi mistakes, the fact that there's new people calling the shots, they're entrusting the filmmakers with the characters, they're giving them the time to develop them and create something special. You know, I want this new team, I want this DCU 2.0 to start off on strong footing. And having Justice League turn a profit and maybe find a whole new audience in the home market, I think is a very strong step in that direction. Because you got to remember, so much about the negativity around Justice League uh, centers on expectations. You know, it centers on the fact that this should have been bigger. It should have been greater. It should have been a pop culture event on the, on the level of the first Avengers. 
It should have been something sort of groundbreaking and epic and unbelievable and iconic to see these heroes on the screen at the same time. And it would have been great to see them go up against an all-time villain and really kind of like just be earth-shattering amazingness. It wasn't those things. But if you can step aside from the disappointment of all that... I do think it was a fairly enjoyable flick. You know, I've seen it twice. I enjoyed it much more the second time around. And most of the general audience members that I've spoken to actually enjoyed it. They enjoyed it more than a bunch of the other DCU movies. You know, so I hope it succeeds. I hope it does well. I hope it finds a whole new audience on the secondary market. And I hope that, you know, now we're kind of, we're able to pivot and we're able to build off of Justice League in a positive way. That would not happen if the film tanked at home. You know what I mean? So I think this is good news. This is encouraging. The only, you know, the only people this is bad for are the people who hated Justice League for totally different reasons. For people who hated Justice League because of what the, you know, the previous regime put Zack Snyder through, you know, then I've, I, I'm with you. I understand the idea of rooting against this film's success on the home market and wanting to see it crash and burn because then maybe you'll, you'll come one step closer to that Snyder cut and maybe it'll make Warner Brothers learn from their mistakes. It'll, be, it'll feel like, like, like punishment. It'll be like, aha, there, we get the last laugh because now look how much people hate this movie. So listen, I get all that. On an emotional level, if the reason you hated Justice League was because you love Zack Snyder and what they did to him feels like an injustice, because in a lot of ways it really was. Um, Listen, I'm with you. I understand how you feel. And I'm sorry to share the bad news, quote unquote, with you that people seem to be taking to the theatrical cut. Um, And that's it. So this week's recommendation, by the way, you know, I, I was I thought long and hard on it, and I've had a few different things on my mind this week because, you know, amidst the continued sort of whispers and murmurs that Matt Reeves may leave the Batman, which I don't think will happen, but you know, it, it has forced me to really think about, you know, who it is I would love to see directed. Because remember, I'm not a huge Reeves guy. You know, I want him to stay I more so for the stability that he represents and more so because I don't want to deal with the um, the outcry and the negative fan backlash if he leaves. But if he were to leave, you know, my my pick is David Fincher. So I've had David Fincher on my mind. And last night I watched The Incredible Hulk and I have Ed Norton on my mind. And so my recommendation this week, when you combine David Fincher, you combine Edward Norton, you end up with Fight Club. I don't know if anyone's ever seen, I mean, I, I mean obviously people have seen Fight Club, but it's one of these films that's more of a, a cult thing, similar to how Justice League might go the way of, of in terms of having a whole second life on the secondary market. Fight Club was this beautiful, seminal cult classic that didn't really do well in theaters, but when people found this thing on video and on TV, it became this huge sort of underground, nihilistic, rebellious movement, so to speak. So Fight Club is my recommendation this week. If you've never seen it, 
I strongly recommend you do so. It's not for the faint of heart. There's a lot of violence, a lot of gore, and a lot of dark subject matter. But I do think it's worth a shot, especially if you were intrigued by the stuff that I opened this episode with in terms of looking at our culture and everything is sound bites and everything is filler and everything is a narrative and it's all run by multinational corporations who, you know, just, you know, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, you know, Fight Club also has some great, you know, uh, social, social commentary. A, a lot of stuff about, you know, it, it, it had its finger on the pulse of the crappy direction that our culture is headed. So that is this week's recommendation. If you're going out to the theaters, uh, you know, where I would put my money based on what's opening and what's currently out. If I were going to the theaters, I would either see Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, if you're into Wes Anderson's brand of filmmaking. It's another stop-motion picture, kind of like uh, his fantastic Mr. Fox. And the reviews are very positive. And it looks really cool. You know, if you're a Wes Anderson person, Isle of Dogs looks right up your alley. Uh, and other than that, I would also, I, I would go see Tomb Raider. I have yet to go see it. Uh, the reviews are still like exactly at 50%, so it means it's a 50-50 thing. So it's really up to you and your preferences, so do not be put off by that rotten grade. That just means that half the people liked it, half the people didn't. So if you're into the games, if you like Alicia Vikander, if you want to have some fun Hollywood escapism, it sounds to me like you could do a lot worse than Tomb Raider. So um, that's it, everyone. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Uh, the Alfanboy podcast it will now be available on Google Play alongside all of its other platforms. So the show is continuing to grow. I've gotten a few more five-star reviews, but they didn't leave actual written reviews. So I can't read them on the air and thank whoever's been leaving them. But currently, the Alfanboy podcast still sits at a perfect five-star rating. If you would like to take the time to go on uh, Apple Podcasts, and leave me a nice review there. I'd really appreciate it. I would read it on the air next week. But either way, I'm just happy to announce that we're now going to be on Google Play as the show and the site, revengeofthefans.com, continues to grow. Um, and that's it. So have a wonderful weekend. And I will catch up with you guys next week on Tuesday's episode of the Revengers podcast alongside my co-hosts Vanessa Lee Bontea and Brett Miro. Until then, adios. <laughs>